This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Have you heard of look smacksing? This trend focused on young guys, you've probably seen stuff on TikTok, trying to make themselves hotter. And maybe you're thinking, oh, what's new about that? That seems pretty normal. Most of it is, but there's other parts of look smacksing like mewing, bone smashing that are extreme. And it's got doctors worried. We're going to be getting into look smacksing, talking about where it came from, which might surprise you actually, later in this podcast. Also, Do the experts talking about science come across too pessimistic or too full-on? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, does it make you less interested in knowing about the universe, our place in it, where we came from? Because it's all a bit blunt. Do you think there needs to be changes in the way science is communicated? Because one doctor does, and he's coming up to discuss why. First, though, just a heads up, we're about to discuss some graphic details of sexual assault allegations. Hack. Brittany Higgins has given evidence about her early interactions with Bruce Lemon at his defamation trial against Network 10 and Lisa Wilkinson. On Triple J. Yeah, there's a big court case happening at the moment that you probably know about. Bruce Lemon is suing Network 10 and journalist Lisa Wilkinson over coverage of Brittany Higgins' rape allegation. Now, you might remember Bruce Lemon's criminal trial was aborted because of juror misconduct, and there are no findings against him. He's always maintained his innocence. In this latest defamation action, he has given evidence. Brittany Higgins has also testified to the federal court today. Let's find out a bit more about what's been happening. ABC reporter Patrick Bell's been following the case. He joins us now. G'day, Pat. Thanks for coming on, Hack. Hi, Dave. How's it going? Yeah, well, thank you. Can you remind us what this case is all about? So the project broadcast an interview with Brittany Higgins in February 2021, and it was the same day that Samantha Maiden in news.com.au had published the first story with Brittany Higgins' allegation. And so Bruce Lehrman initially earlier this year uh, was suing both Network 10 and Newslife Media, which runs news.com.au, but he's settled with News and with Samantha Maiden, pressing ahead, though, with his claim against Channel 10. So Bruce Lauman was giving his testimony earlier this week. What did he have to say? So the reason that there's so much evidence that's being explored is because Channel 10 is seeking to prove to the court that its report was true and that on balance, Brittany Higgins was raped by Bruce Lehman at Parliament House. So he faced about four days of testimony, much of which was cross-examination. So he, of course, repeated his denial and said he did not rape Brittany Higgins at Parliament House. Uh, He had previously said that when the pair entered the ministerial office in Parliament House, that uh, he didn't see her again after that and he's uh, repeated that claim. But he was compelled to address a few inconsistencies in his evidence. I think one of the most important was when he conceded that he did actually buy a couple of drinks for Brittany Higgins on the night before they went to Parliament House, despite the fact that he said he didn't. He was shown security footage of him buying at least two what looked like vodka, lime and sodas for Brittany Higgins and conceded that he did actually do that and his earlier testimony 
was wrong. He's also conceded that he did have alcohol in his office and the reason that was important is he told the Australian Federal Police that he didn't have alcohol in his office when he did his first police interview and he was also challenged about his whereabouts in the week or 10 days or so after the alleged rape. He had told his then chief of staff in the minister's office that he'd gone to Queensland to be with his mother, who was experiencing some health issues, but had to admit that that wasn't the case either. And he was, for the most part, in Canberra and and spent a bit of time in Sydney. So uh, a few things there that were pointed out as inconsistencies that Mr Lehrman had to clear up. So that was Bruce Lehrman's testimony. Brittany Higgins was also testifying today. What did she have to say? So the court started by hearing about what it was that led up to the night in question. And Brittany Higgins uh, had said that she'd invited Mr Lehrman and a couple of other people to these drinks that were happening at one of the pubs on the Kingston foreshore. It's quite a trendy part of Canberra. Uh, She spoke a bit about how he was to her that night and said that he was the nicest he had ever been, uh, but also said that she was very inebriated and used the words that she was more drunk than she had had ever been and certainly uh, had never been that drunk in Canberra. So she had, I think she said, about 11 drinks over the night and that left her, she says, in a very intoxicated state. And so she then recounted the detail of what she alleges happened in the Parliament House office, that she woke to find Mr Lehrman on top of her, that she repeatedly refused and told him no, but that he she alleges ignored that and kept having sex with her without consent. Uh, She spoke a bit as well about how he behaved to her afterwards and said that she felt, in her words, freaked out that uh, he seemed to still have a sense of familiarity with her despite the alleged assault. So there was quite a bit of ground that Brittany Higgins covered. She became emotional on the stand as she had been uh, at points in giving evidence in the criminal trial as well. She's not yet finished her evidence in chief, which is where Network 10's lawyer is asking her questions. And once that's done, she'll then be cross-examined and Bruce Lehrman's lawyers will ask her questions about her version of events. So that'll probably happen tomorrow. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with ABC reporter Patrick Bell about the Bruce Lehrman defamation court case currently underway in the federal court. Pat, who else are we expected to hear from? Well, Channel 10 said yesterday the court heard it will call more than 20 supporting witnesses. So that ranges from uh, supportive people in Miss Higgins' life at the time, a close friend, even her own father, who will testify that uh, she disclosed details of the allegation to various degrees to them. They uh, will also uh, attempt to call Fiona Brown, who was the chief of staff at the time. We're not sure exactly if that's going to happen. Uh, And later in the trial, we'll probably hear from Lisa Wilkinson herself, who will give evidence about how the program was prepared. And that's important because even if Channel 10 can't prove on the balance of probabilities that this rape did occur, uh, they can still 
win this case by proving that the story was of such public interest that they had a duty to report it. And so those are the kind of arguments that we'll probably hear from Lisa Wilkinson herself and maybe some other Channel 10 producers a little later in the trial. It's only the sixth day today of about 17, so still quite a way to go. Yeah, I was going to ask how long we're expecting this to continue for. There is still quite a bit to get through. We'll keep checking in. We appreciate the update. ABC reporter Patrick Bell, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Cheers, thank you. Hack. How to properly look max. Maximizing your looks to be the most attractive version you could be. On Triple J. How often do you catch yourself looking in the mirror or feeling a little self-conscious when taking a selfie? I think it's fair to say most people think about what they look like. But there is a trend that's been doing the rounds recently that's got young guys in particular obsessing over their appearance. It's called look smaxing. Have you heard of it? Are you into it? Some of it seems pretty harmless. Skincare routines, exercise. Then there's more extreme stuff with people trying to change the way their face looks, obsessing with having people rate their appearance. And this whole looks maxing movement started out in deep web incel groups on forums that are often filled with hate speech and racism and things like that. We'll be speaking a bit more with an expert about just where it came from. But first, here's our reporter, Nathan Nigadula. Like most guys, I knew that looks were important, but I didn't realise how much of an impact they have on a person's life. This is Dean Robertson. He lives in the US and is the founder of LooksMaxing.com. It's a forum with over 18,000 users, mostly young men, who want to improve their looks. Dean preferred to chat over email, so we're reading out his responses. I was first introduced to the concept of looks maxing back in 2019 by a friend who had just started taking steps to improve his physical appearance. I decided to launch the forum because I wanted to create a community of people who are also interested in improving their appearance, sharing their results, and becoming the best versions of themselves. Looks maxing is a trend that started in incel communities, promoting the idea that if a man improves their looks, they'll become more successful, wealthy, and attract women. It used to be a lot more extreme. Starting out on dark web pages, incels would treat their looks like a stat that could be maxed out, similar to a video game character. People would go as far as smashing bones in their face and limbs in the hopes of reshaping their chin or growing taller. All you gotta do to look absolutely fabulous is smash your bones with a hammer. If you're not inside that 10 to 12% body fat mark, majority of women are gonna find you a lot less desirable as if you were. But the side of looks maxing that's gone viral is called soft maxing. Focusing on self-improvement, it's things like skincare, dieting, or performing daily chewing exercises to get a better jawline. This is mainly what you'll see on TikTok. Disturbingly, the forums talking about looks maxing are still really connected to incel culture, with chats filled with hate speech and sexism. Here's what Dean had to say about it. I'm hoping that I can change that in the coming months and years. My ultimate goal is to change the negative stereotype associated with looks maxing and turn it into a positive one by enforcing strict rules against hate speech and racism on the forum, which is not typical of other communities in the same space. I also asked Dean if he's seen looks maxing negatively affect his users. I think some people should be careful about the information they consume and try to understand that some things are out of their control and that they should focus on what they can improve on. I decided to ask an expert about some of the trends that are popular in the looks maxing community. 
So I spoke to Dr. Michael Mrzinski about a viral exercise called mewing. You want your entire tongue to be touching the roof of your mouth. People are telling you that if you put your tongue in a certain position, you can change the shape of your face and look more masculine or look more snatched. In reality, if that was the case um, and your bones were that malleable, then when you woke up from a sleep in the morning, your face would be a completely different shape. But is it going to do any long-term changes to your face? Unfortunately not. Another trend is called hunter eyes, where people perform squinting and massaging exercises to change the way that their eye looks. The people who say these things don't get the complexity of the tissues that are there. It's a change at every level of skin all the way down to bone. It's not as simple as oh, if you rub it, it will tighten up and it will look a bit better. Dr. Michael warns looks maxing could have huge impacts on your mental health. I think it's on the, on the same spectrum as body dysmorphia. People have unrealistic expectations as to, to what they look like. I also asked him if he had any advice for people who were looks maxing. I think the best advice that I can give as a, as a doctor is to work on your mental health and get yourself nice and confident in your body. Don't try and um, subscribe to what everybody else thinks is, uh, you know, good looking or, or the trends that go about as well because you know um, you, you'll just be on a path to never being happy unfortunately Hack on Triple J Nathan Nigidula with that update let's get into this a bit more find out more about where Looks Maxim came from the history how the movement spread Brandon Sparks is a senior lecturer in forensic psychology he's at Kingston University London and he's been looking into incel communities done a lot of research into this area He's with us now. G'day, Brandon. Thanks for coming on Hack. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Can you first just remind us who are incels? Like, what is this culture all about? Yeah. So I take a pretty broad definition when I talk about incels, and I say this is just someone who is experiencing some sort of distress on account of not being able to form romantic or sexual bonds with another person, and that this has been an ongoing issue. So it's not just you know, you go to the pub one night and you, you know, go home alone and uh, you're not feeling too keen about it. That doesn't necessarily make you an incel. This is a prolonged uh, experience. So in speaking with incels, that seems to be what a lot of them consider it. They consider it more of a circumstantial identity than than an ideologically driven one. Because incel stands for involuntary celibates, doesn't it? Where did yeah. that idea come from? Like, uh, when did it start popping up? Uh, I was in the the mid to late 90s and it was actually a a woman who came up with it basically she was you know hitting the the college years and was struggling to form you know those kind of romantic and sexual bonds we were talking about she wanted to create a term that kind of reflected what she was going through and you know she was celibate but not in a voluntary sense and she ended up starting sort of a, a blog slash website called Alana's Involuntary Celibacy Project. And it became sort of a hub for a lot of people who were experiencing similar issues, you know, regardless of, of sex or gender. Ultimately, this continued to grow and eventually there kind of became predominantly male offshoot of this that we hear more about today. And so looksmaxing, which is this concept that we've been hearing about uh, over the past few minutes, uh, examples of how it's spread to different online communities, how is it connected to incel communities? So within incel communities, there is this sort of propagation of an ideology. And I don't want to say that everybody believes it, but certainly it's it's present in these forums. Uh, 
called the black pill and it's basically just an, an extension of the matrix pill ideologies in short it's believing that they have some sort of profound knowledge of the way that the world works that others are ignorant to. The black pill effectively states that society is based on an impenetrable looks-based hierarchy and in terms of dating and really in, in other things as well. Everything is based on how physically attractive someone is. So if you believe that, you're going to look for things to enhance your physical appearance. I mean, because to me, it seems like the idea of look smacksing might actually go against some of what incels believe or some incels believe that they're kind of forced to live in this state of doomed existence and they can't do anything about it. Yeah, it does seem contradictory. And this kind of gets into, you know, the pill ideologies, because initially it was red pill versus blue pill, which was, again, the, the reference to the matrix, the blue pill, you'll kind of live in a state of blissful ignorance, the red pill, you're kind of awakened to, to life's harsh truths. And the harsh life truth was that society's on a looks-based hierarchy, but you can game the system through, you know, anything basic from brushing your hair to getting plastic surgery, you can move up that hierarchy. The black pill seems to indicate that, no, it's futile. And somewhere within those two, there's this idea of looks maxing and, and gym maxing. So even if the black pill is hopeless and people kind of buy into it, um, there also still seems to be this faint hope that maybe, you know, maybe I can improve uh, my lot in life through enhancing my physical appearance. I think there are probably a lot of people who might be listening to this and thinking, oh, the idea of improving physical appearance seems like pretty harmless to me, not knowing it's related to some kind of more extreme ideology. Do you think that's the case? Yeah, well, and I think that's why this ideology took hold a bit, because there's obviously a kernel of truth to that, right? Being physically attractive is certainly going to be advantageous when you hit the dating market. And someone who is lesser attractive may have a harder time or may have to offer something else up, right? They might, you know, maybe they're really funny. They've got a great personality, those kind of things. So there is a kernel of truth in it. The issue is that that is not the only thing people evaluate in a potential romantic partner. It's one of many things and different people are going to weigh that in different ways. Yeah. And I, I guess the idea of, you know, enhancing your physical attractiveness, that seems kind of harmless. And sometimes the advice that we give people and, you know, you think back to movies where they have sort of the classic like 80s montage, they give the girl with glasses a makeover and suddenly she goes from, you know, a bookie librarian to being beautiful. And there is kind of a trope there of look what can happen and how much happier you can be. You know, when you just make a few minor alter alterations of your physical appearance, but obviously that can bleed into a whole host of issues and make one really self-conscious, constantly thinking about their looks in an unhealthy way. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Brandon Sparks, who's a researcher at Kingston University in London, looks at forensic psychology, has also been looking a lot into incel communities. And we're talking about look smacksing, this trend that you would have seen pop up, uh, its origins, where it kind of came from. So do you think that these ideas around look smacksing, gym maxing are dangerous? How, how worried should we be about them? 
Yeah, I think they can certainly be harmful. Again, if this becomes a rumination for someone, you know, I'm ugly and, you know, I need to get plastic surgery in order to, you know, be happy in life or to find people who will care about me or love me. That's really tough because it also insinuates that they don't feel that they themselves as human beings are capable of being loved unless you know, they they enhance their physical appearance. So they're kind of basing their worth on their physical appearance. So yeah, I, I would say that that's a harmful belief to have about oneself and it's going to make potentially future relationships very difficult. This is all rooted in normal advice we might be giving someone or in, in small doses enhancing one's physical appearance. You're right, might not seem harmless, but when it becomes sort of this obsession, that's really when I think we've got concern to worry about whether they're incels or not. You know, if they're coming across this looks maxing stuff, becoming really buying into it, uh, it's it's not good for people's well-being. Definitely interesting research that you're doing. We appreciate you coming on to Hack to talk to us about it. Brandon Sparks, Senior Lecturer in Forensic Psychology at Kingston University, London. Thank you very much for coming and speaking with Thank us on you. Hack. Take care. And we got some messages coming through on the text line. Someone says, if these people spent half the time working on their personalities and relationships and respect towards women rather than their looks, they'd grow their confidence quicker and have much more success. Another person says, thanks for the interesting segment. I completely agree with the rhetoric that it's an unhealthy culture which promotes insecurity, dissatisfaction in self-image. This is something that exists a lot for women in society with unrealistic beauty standards. That was from B and Nam. Also some messages through on Instagram as well. Someone says, what is concerning is the increase of the membership of this community. Another person, this is no different to glowing up and I find it all sad and toxic. Yeah, go to Hack's Instagram. You'll find a big explainer there that you can look at, you can share interesting stuff. Time to move on. Hack, looking out to the cosmos to find some answer that's sort of floating out there in the void is just facing the wrong direction. On Triple Jack. Talking about science changes the way we think about the world, like whether it's climate, the history of the planet, how we got here, where we're going from here. But do you sometimes think, oh, it's all a bit depressing, isn't it? Hack! The universe doesn't care. There is nothing out there. Coming into existence is always a net harm. Do you think my dog feels love for me? It would be low levels. <sighs> I know it's a lot to take in. The earth will end up toasted as a cinder, probably still orbiting the remains of the sun. All that would matter only if we matter. And why should we matter? We are just a momentary byproduct of laws of physics. On Triple J. Yeah, some of the science communities seem a little pessimistic. Communicators, sorry, seem a bit pessimistic sometimes, don't they? Like, some of the stuff we just heard there... Is that just the way of it? Or could we be doing things a bit differently? Making people, I don't know, feel more connected, more interested in science. Someone who's been looking into this is Dr. Chris Ellis. He's a medical doctor, now doing his PhD into science communication at the University of Sydney. And he's written this piece called Science Communicators Need to Stop Telling Everybody the Universe is a Meaningless Void. (laughs) And I want to know more. Dr. Chris Ellis, thanks for coming on Hack. Hey, Dave. How are you going? Yeah, I'm good. I'm so interested in your piece, what your research is showing, what you think about science communicators in general. Do you think that they are too negative? 
I think we first have to make the distinction between communicators and popularizers. I mean, the popularizers are people like uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson and Brian Green, but I, I generally call them communicators as well. And interestingly, I don't think that they find their viewpoints at all to be negative. Uh, when I question them about it, that's just their normal way of viewing the world. They derive excitement from the alternative story about humans being born in the center of a star and being made out of stuff that's been in existence since the beginning of the universe. So for them to say, for instance, we have no free will or there is inherently no meaning in the universe or that human beings aren't special, it's not something they necessarily see as being negative. But when communicating their science, they don't always have an appreciation for the diversity of beliefs in human society and the different way in which humans derive meaning from life. So I think a lot of people in the community would find, and I certainly find, uh, the way they popularise and communicate science as being negative. I mean, people would be listening to this as well thinking, oh, well, there's no point sugarcoating things. If that's the way it is, we've got to hear it. How do you respond to that? I think there's a difference between science and science communication. I wouldn't expect science to change their view of cosmology in order to not to upset people. But I think when you're communicating science, that has an agenda. And our agenda is a really important thing, is really important challenges such as, uh, you know, combating climate change and encouraging people to be vaccinated. And when we communicate science, I really think we need to not tell people what they didn't ask to hear. So if somebody wants to read a book on is free will uh, real or not, and they choose to do that, forgive the you know, obvious uh, problem with choosing to read a book on free will, but if, if they choose to do that and they should get uh, something out of that that answers a question scientifically. But if they want to read a book on uh, the human story, and they might want to know a bit more about cosmology or a bit more about stellar evolution, they didn't necessarily ask anyone to tell them that their life had no meaning <laughs> and that they don't have free will and that their whole existence is meaningless. I They don't ask for it. And I don't think science should really, there are so many books these days that, where the opening chapter is basically all about that. And I don't really think it's necessary. Hey, I mean, it's an interesting viewpoint. You also compare science communicators with public health communicators and messaging. Where's the difference there, do you think? Well, I'm a doctor myself, trained in public health. Uh, uh, as I say that the, in my article, there's 20 languages. The word welcome is written in 20 languages on the entrance to Royal North Shore Birthing Unit. And we all, always ask people, you know, do they need a spiritual guide while they're here in hospital, especially if they're palliative, if, they, if they're going to die? And I think that's a very different approach. We've put human beings at the centre of healthcare now, well, at least since Patch Adams was released, but, you know, for quite a long time now. And the World Health Organization states that health is not just the absence of disease, it's total physical, mental, social well-being. And I think that's really important that we understand that for people to get better, the virus doesn't care about their religion or their spirituality, but the person cares. And if the person cares about their spirituality and we want to heal them, then we should care about their spirituality as well. That's not to say we should modify science. I just think we should be more selective in how we communicate it. Yeah, I mean, and to make it clear, you're differentiating between science itself and science communicators, the way the messaging gets out there, the way people receive it. Do you think there does need to be a big change? Like, how would you like to see this type of science communicating changed? Well, I think, again, it's more important about what we leave out. When people aren't asking for us to tell them that their beliefs and their values are false, then why go out of our way to tell them? Or why think it's necessary to tell them? 
We want people to engage with science. So we find a lot of religious people are not engaged with science and they don't believe in climate change. And I can't help but think, and this is the subject of my research, if there is a uh, relationship between the way in which we devalue people's beliefs and their engagement with science on issues such as climate change. So again, it's more of what we leave out rather than what we include. Interesting as well that you're saying that a lot of people are really maybe being pushed out or just feel like this isn't a conversation that they don't want to enter, whereas if the messaging changed, maybe we'd see a lot more engagement and people uh, wanting to be involved, wanting to do good. Absolutely. And our sense of meaning is scientific. We've evolved to feel meaning for things because it probably makes us more successful as a species to feel meaning and to feel invested in what we do. So I don't think we should belittle that at all. I think we should celebrate that. Even science can celebrate that from a scientific perspective. It's interesting stuff. It's fascinating research. Uh, I'm definitely keen to hear people's thoughts on it. We're getting a lot of messages through on the text line now. Dr. Chris Ellis, uh, thank you very much for coming on Hack and Breaking That Down. Very interesting. And um, yeah, I'm sure we'll speak to you again, maybe in a positive way about some science stuff that's going down in the world. Thank you very much. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.